third chapter of Titus this morning is transformed to do what is good. And the letter to Titus, similar to the letter to Timothy, uh, Paul was giving these guys some really good instruction, uh, giving them encouragement, giving them guidance. Uh, he truly is their mentor, ones that they work to, so or ones that they work for to be more like Paul and what they said and what they did. And, of course, Paul was clear, as Jesus is clear to us, that anything we're doing for God's kingdom won't be easy. It won't be without trials or tribulations, uh, but we just count on his strength and not our own. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the third chapter of Titus, I'm going to park just for a couple of minutes on the first two verses. Paul writes to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. As a believer, our first allegiance is to God Almighty through our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we must remember that we are to obey our government as well as its leaders. As painful as it may seem right now, this is what we are commanded to do. We are not above the law. We must do everything we can, though, to draw the government closer to God and to be able to do that in this democracy while we still have a democracy. It means participating and serving and being willing to share God's word with those that are leaders in this nation. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. We genuinely believe and we say with our lips that God is in control of all things at all times. We say that. He grants us free will, though, and he molds our characters for character for his good will. We might say, why or what are you doing, God? But he is in total control, and we are here to be his obedient slaves following his word. You know, at one point in time, as we read in the Old Testament, God's people are just running king after king after king and just destroying all these other uh, nations, when they get through doing that, what do they do? God has covered them in these battles, and they say, God, you know what we need? We need a king. And I'm sure God was thinking, what? You need somebody to lead you? I thought that's what I was doing. And they go, no, uh, we need a king, so we pick Saul. God granting his, granting his people free will, he goes, okay, you got him. I'm not so sure that we're not living this over and over and over and over again in this nation. We choose so often to follow man and to rely on man and not God. So in this time that we live in, my suggestion is to put on the armor of God and get into the battle that we know he will win. Get into the battle for him. 
and listen to some of the other things that Paul tells Titus on how we should do that. Because I think Paul, as he's writing this letter to Titus, as he wrote the one to Timothy, I think he's writing to us today. And so if we'll pick up with the third verse, and I'm going to go through the ninth verse, and that's where we're going to park this morning. See if we don't see ourselves in some of these words that Paul is writing to Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of love, the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want, you, I want to stress that these, these things to those who have trusted God may be careful to devote themselves in doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish conversations and genealogy and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are not unprofitable. These are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. He may be may, you may be assured that such a man is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. There's a lot in these six verses. He's, he's unpacked an awful lot of guidance for us. So let us look back for a moment. When the early church was being established during a time when there was more beliefs than there were stars that they could count in the sky, each time Rome conquered another country and another nation, they would add the gods that that place had. They did this to encourage a sense of openness, but a sense of togetherness, so everyone would get along. In the Greco-Roman world, there were many gods, so that everyone could be peaceful. They would all have their gods. If you wanted love, you prayed to Eros. If you wanted wisdom, you prayed to Athena. And if you were really in trouble, you prayed to the king of the gods, Zeus. It got so bad that the people began to erect statues to the unknown God. They wanted to make sure they were covered by all these gods, so let's just build one and we'll just call this one whatever you want to call it. But this is a God. They wanted to be safe that they had honored all the gods. So the question today is, what gods do we have today? Well, as we sit here this morning, we would all say we have one God. But follow me here. We may not erect a statue to a God that can be seen, but do we erect a statue in our hearts? We prioritize what is important to us. We worship and covet so many things like, oh, maybe money, time, and resources on this earth. We protect them and defend them with our lives. And when asked to give to others based on God's word, what's the first thing that goes through our mind? 
Is this important to me? Do I have time to do this? And we begin to focus on ourselves. So while we don't have statues of unknown gods, so often we carry those around in our heart. You see, Paul is also summarizing what Christ does for us when he saves us. We move from a life full of sin to one where God's Holy Spirit leads us. All of our sins, not just some of them, all of them have been washed away. We recognize this by our baptism as we recognize Christ's saving work in our life. We gain eternal life and and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Remember this, that the Holy Spirit continually renews our hearts as we stumble and stumble God continues to pick us up and walk with us by the Holy Spirit. None of this occurs because we earned it or deserved it. It is a gracious gift from God. Paul mentions the three persons, the Trinity, during these verses. That's because these all participate in the work of salvation. Based on the redemptive work of the Son, the Father forgives us and sends the Holy Spirit to wash away our sins and continually renew and guide us. You see, the gospel is the conduit for God's grace through Jesus Christ. And yet, Paul warns Titus as he warned Timothy not to be involved in foolish and unprofitable arguments. This doesn't mean that we should not study, discuss, or examine different interpretations of Bible passages. Paul is arguing against petty quarrels, not honest discussions that lead to wisdom. And you know what? It's all right in a discussion maybe that you don't understand or a discussion that just disgusts you so much, it's okay to walk away from those. You can always pray and ask God for meaning in your life, for his will to be done at that very moment in time. The point is, you do not have to continue arguments for the sole purpose of arguing with someone. When we get into an argument or disagreement, what's the most important thing during that discussion? Two things, and they just rise side by side. One is, I wanna make sure I make my point. And if I make sure I make my point, then I have won that argument. Rather than having a discussion where we educate and fellowship and love with mercy one another, it becomes about us. You see, often reaction can, an overreaction can cause us to focus more more attention on the other person's point of view. Let me give you a couple examples of trivial issues that maybe Paul's talking about. How many angels can fit on the head of a pen? Where did Cain get his wife from? Can God make a rock too heavy for him himself to move? You ever have a discussion with somebody and as the discussion goes on, you think to yourself, why are we even talking about this? Is this really relevant or important? You see, many questions produce endless endless speculation and bring far more heat than they do light. And again, it's important to us that we be correct. 
And in this day and age, we argue sometimes about truth. In reality, we are arguing about feeling and the perception we have about something. Some of you may have heard this story. There are six blind men that bump into an elephant. And one of them reaches up and touches the trunk, and the trunk of the elephant wraps around this one blind man, and he says, oh, this is a python. I'm being wrapped up. And another man touches a tusk, and he says, no, no, this is a spear. It's a huge spear. And someone else runs into the the back of the elephant. He says, no, this is a wall. It's a strong wall. And somebody else standing by the head of the elephant says, no, this is a fan as the elephant moves his ears back and forth. And somebody else bumps into a leg and wraps his arm around and says, no, this is a tree. And finally, one of them grabbing the elephant by the tail says, this is a very strong rope. Are they wrong? But is that truth? So you get into a conversation explaining to them what they don't know. They need someone that can see for them and explain to them. That's important. But we do it with mercy and we do it with grace. You don't say to them, dude, you can't see. That's not, you're, it's an elephant that you ran into. Just say, wow. You know what? I understand why you think that's a tree. That's pretty good sized tree, but it's not a tree. It's a leg of an elephant. It's not a spear. It's a tusk. This is an elephant. And so there are conversations that we can have. And often speculation seldom edifies or more often causes ill will and pride and controversy and strife when we get into these conversations. So As you do with your kids when they're growing up, you pick and choose your battles. I'm going to say this. The guys are going to understand this. The ladies are not. When you're a three-year-old, when you tell your three-year-old, get dressed, we're getting ready to leave. And your three-year-old, I'll make it a boy, okay? Your three-year-old son comes out, and he's got on a pair of purple shorts, a red tank top, and he's wearing cowboy boots and a baseball hat turned around backwards. Dad is happy. Why? He dressed himself. (laughs) Mom is absolutely appalled, not on the little boy, but on who? Dad. That's not dressed. No, it is dressed. Now, what are we arguing about now? Whether he's dressed or not. Well, in reality, he is dressed. No, he's not dressed properly. Yeah, we're all laughing. Those of you that are laughing have had this argument already. (laughs) You see, Paul is saying that there are false teachers who are basing their heresies on genealogy and speculations about the law. And this is what was going on for the Colossians and those people in Ephesus. However, a person must be warned when he or she is causing division and threatening the unity of the church. This warning should not be heavy-handed. It should be intended to correct any divisive nature and restore the person to fellowship within the church. But he does say if they refuse to put them outside the church, outside that fellowship. Paul says they are self-condemned. They have condemned themselves. An important 
takeaway is that our identity lies in Jesus Christ, not in our circumstances, not in the disagreement we may be having, not in the confusion we may be having reading the Bible. And all the pastors here will tell you there has been times that we have struggled with something that's in the Bible and we have talked and we can see each other's point of view, but, but it's not one of those things that is a contention of absolute truth with no leeway in others where there are leeway. A good example is baptism. Sometimes pastors get into a disagreement over baptism because as an infant, if you christen or dedicate a child, some denominations believe you don't need to be baptized later on. There are other churches who believe you can only be a member of this church if we baptize you in this church. So there's some areas that you can disagree on and some people can find the words that say this is the absolute truth and others can read those same words and say no, there's a little bit of gray area here. What's the most important thing? The most important thing is Jesus Christ is our Savior. And God is in control. And I promise you, getting dunked does not in and of itself save you. It is an outward sign of an inward commitment you have made to Jesus Christ. But it's what you do with your life after you come up out of that water. Look at Jesus. Jesus was baptized. God Almighty said, this is my son who with whom I am well pleased. And then what happened to Jesus? Sent him to the wilderness to be tempted. You think Jesus ever went, whoa, 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 wait. You're supposed to be well, but why, why am I in the wilderness? I got nothing to eat. Who is this dude that's talking to me now? Why is this happening to me? God builds our character each and every day, drawing us closer to him. Another important takeaway from this is, like I said, our identity in, in Christ. We are reminded that when we leave this church, though, we go into the world. And we can be close, close, close to God when we're in service, when we're praying, when we're reading the Bible. But when that is over with, we step into Satan's world. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or anything in, excuse me, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The evil one uses lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life to focus believers on his kingdom rather than on God's. When believers disobey God and love things of this world, it is only possible because they choose to take their eyes off Christ. They choose to take their eyes off Christ. Now, let's don't get into the blame game. It's not my fault. Bob told me to go do this. Sally told me this was a good idea. No, you made the choice to do that. So take responsibility for your choices. But when you take your eyes off Christ, the same thing will happen to you as it happened to Peter. Peter's walking on water. How amazing is that? His focus is on Christ. He moves his focus to the wind, and he begins to sink. 
James states that you may have lust in your heart for money, power, pleasures, fame, and he goes on and on. The evil one knows that, and he's going to place opportunity after opportunity to tempt you. Just as I said earlier, as Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Satan uses these opportunities to enslave us. The fact is, God is merciful, and sometimes when we make a mistake, he doesn't punish us. In fact, he corrects us. It may be a little painful, but it's not the punishment that we actually deserve, not the justice we deserve. But yet, when God corrects us, the evil one is quick to say, you know, that's merely a coincidence. It's merely a product of a chance. Let's go ahead and move on. The more we become more like the world, the less likely we are to believe our identity is in Christ, that we are ambassadors and lights to others. The word Christian no longer means the same thing that the Bible says it should mean. Our identity is just merely a title. It's without real meaning. With the love of this world and the fear of physical pain and death in hand, Satan can take every Christian and get them to drop their focus on God just for a moment. In fact, a very few moments after you leave church. Then he has our attention and our needs and wants become our primary focus. You hear that? Our needs and wants become our primary focus. Outside the church, we allow the love of this world and the concerns for our physical well-being to drown us out. Drown out our focus on Christ. We We become immersed in a sea of chaos, conflicting values and motivations, and like Peter, we begin to sink. The world speaks confidently about frivolous matters of no consequence. We need to prioritize our lives and focus on Christ and God's promises. Paul tells Titus to speak boldly. Paul emphasizes his emphasis is on action. We are to take hold of our life rather than having our life drag us through. We are to be participants, not spectators. We are to serve others. We are to serve others whether they are saved or not. These good deeds are profitable and beneficial and useful to those who use them well, but most importantly, and are also as important, it's useful to those that see you participating in that. You become the example of Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's workmanship. You are his masterpiece. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good, to do good works to do things that are beneficial to God's kingdom when he needs them done. God has prepared us in advance to do these things. Paul makes a couple of key points for Titus to share. Remember that we, too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived by others. We had all kinds of passions and pleasures. We hated with malice and envy, but with kindness of God, he saved us. Simply put, you are no better than anyone out there that has not been saved. Do not be hateful, especially when you are given the opportunity to share the gospel. 
Do not be overbearing or prideful. Share the same love that God shared with you when he brought you out of darkness. Sometimes it doesn't change your circumstances, but God gives us the opportunity to walk with him in bad circumstances. Best example I can think of is if it's raining outside and you're getting ready to go out, can you make it stop raining at least till you get to the car? No. But you have been provided an umbrella that when you get outside, you can open up so you don't get as wet. Circumstances haven't changed, but your involvement in those circumstances have gotten a little bit better. You see, God's grace opens an umbrella during a rainy season of your life so that you may overcome and have victory while everybody else around you is all wet. Another point is that salvation is a gift to you, and it cannot be earned. It's not a position. It's not a title. It's not something you have earned. It comes not through works, but through, listen to this, it comes through confession, repentance, and belief in the anointing sacrifice of Christ that made you holy. It comes through Jesus. It was Christ, not our works, which broke our slavery to sin and washed us clean. I believe, if, I believe in the anointing sacrifice of God's son, and I am no longer enslaved to sin. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that one can boast. Let me begin to wrap all this up. Let's review what we've heard from Paul to Titus. We heard about being transformed in Christ. Paul begins the chapter by reminding Titus what to expect, what the expectation of believers should be. We are to cooperate and are urged to submit to the authorities above them. Then he speaks to our conduct. We are not to speak evil. We're not to be brawlers. Instead, we are to be gentle and we are to reflect the faith in Christ that we have. Paul reminded them of the transformation they had received from Christ, that they had been rebellious, they had been foolish, they had been disobedient, they had been deceived, they had been living in hate, living with malice and envy. And we should not be self-righteous with a condescending attitude of condemnation toward one another. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Also, that our transformation is not a result of our works or righteousness. It's only according to the mercy and the grace bestowed upon us as undeserving souls, bestowed upon us by God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Justice is not, is not getting, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. There was a guy who had his picture taken, and he was very upset after he saw the picture, and he quickly went back to the photographer and told the photographer how very upset he was about the picture. As he rushed back, he said, look at this picture of me. It does not do me justice. The photographer replied as he looked at him and said, mister, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. 
That's exactly the situation we are in. We don't need justice. We just need a whole lot of mercy. The sin of our past has been forgiven and our salvation granted. Paul explains that we are justified by God's redeeming grace, and thus we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The sin of our past has been forgiven and our salvation granted. Listen very carefully to those words there. It's not granted to you that have not repented to you from your sins. You need to confess and repent of your sins so that God can bless you. As you move along, you may go, well, God's blessing me, so maybe he's forgotten. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way. Well, he certainly is not punishing me the way I need to be punished. God's wanting to correct you. God's wanting to have mercy on you. And maybe he is, and as you walk along, you may feel better about yourself. And the fact of the matter is, you're missing some of the blessing that he has for you. So we should strive to attain the complete blessing that God has for us. And you know, today we are dealing with so much that is contrary to our faith today. We have legislation that diminishes our freedom. We see more and more folks that are opposed to the gospel. Remember, in the beginning, we admitted that God was a sovereign God and in control of all things, which will bring him glory as his will is done. That should remain a proper perspective and focus for us each and every day. We're called to be salt and light to the entire world. We have been transformed to be obedient to his will, but that transformation comes with expectations of us and responsibilities for us. We must commit to living our lives so others will see and believe in Jesus Christ. All right? By removing sin's control over our life, our words and deeds of love can clearly be seen. For Paul, love is the key to showing the world what's inside our hearts. The only voice that can help save others from the fiery pits of hell comes from your heart. Show others your love by doing good. Doing is an action verb, folks. And when asked why you are being kind, point to them to God the Father in heaven who has been mercifully kind to you. And he's the only reason that you have hope for eternal life. So this morning I ask that you pray for strength and pray in and on his promises. He will not abandon you or he will not forsake you. If there are burdens, bring them to the Lord. Bring them to the Lord for provisions and follow his will. If you desire to feel the true transformation in his life, be open and honest with him. You know, if you've heard something this morning, you want to rededicate your life to Christ and say, you know what? I think maybe I get it. I think maybe I see it differently this morning. Let me give you the opportunity to do that this morning. You can do it where you sit, or you can come to the altar. But most importantly, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't let this, this morning in without making that commitment. And we have pastors here to pray with you and to pray for you. 
Don't let Satan convince you. You just need to sit here. We need to do things for him, for his glory. Amen. Thank you.